Today we're going to finish our series on the Bible. We speak from the Bible every week, but we've been talking for the last seven weeks about God's Word, the importance of it, and how we can become more a people of this book together. Uh, next week, uh, here at Bell Hill Campus, all three services will have a celebration Sunday. It'll just be extended time of worship. Uh, Malia and her team are going to be uh, a part of that and leading it for us. And uh, I know people always love those, those types of services. And then two weeks from today, we will begin a 25-week study of the Gospel of Mark. Very excited about this. We've been talking about the importance and how we approach Scripture. Now we're going to do it together, and we're going to work through the entire Gospel of Mark and wrap it up uh, at Easter. So it'll be perfect. Looking forward to it. I think it'll be transformational. And so plan to be a part of that. Maybe begin reading it now, the Gospel of Mark, and be asking yourself what, what in it is God uh, saying to us and preparing yourself for it. How many of you are familiar with what we call Jefferson's Bible? Anybody? Lou, a few of you. Yeah. The Larrabees, Dave. Um, most people don't know this, but Jefferson took it upon himself. This is our founding father, Thomas Jefferson. We um, sometimes think that our founding fathers were all Christians. Some were, but the fact is that many of them, like Jefferson, chief among them, were deists. Uh, and Jefferson was a libertarian and a deist. Um, he liked Jesus, but he didn't think much of Christianity. He thought it was a waste of time. And uh, he took it upon himself to free Jesus from Christian mythology as he saw it. In his mind, he wanted to elevate Jesus to his rightful place among the great leaders and thinkers and teachers of history. And so he decided, think about this, think about how arrogant this is. He decided he was going to edit out anything from the Bible that diminished Jesus into this superstitious thing that Christianity had made him. With all due respect to our founding father, how arrogant is that? By the time he was done, the Old Testament was gone. Everything in the, New, in the New Testament except the Gospels, and most of the Gospels are gone except for the life events of Jesus and his teaching. Anything that Jefferson found more rational, a product of the Age of Enlightenment, things that fit into more his idea of sensibilities. And so that's what we're left with. The story of Jesus ends with him dead and laying in a tomb in Jefferson's Bible. Now we look at that and we say that's a sad thing to miss out on the Jesus that is the real Jesus of history that the eyewitnesses saw, the miraculous, the divine, the Savior who we worship. But in some sense, we're all like Jefferson. We, we all have an edited Bible. Oh, no, we, I, I wouldn't suggest that any of us would, like, tear pages out. But there's a sparling Bible, right? There's, there's a, whatever your last name is, there's, there's a Bible in your name. Because all of us who engage the Bible are selective. Let's admit it. There are areas that we struggle with and we want to pretend aren't there, so we just ignore them. <laughs> and we focus on those passages that are more sensible to us or that we find more helpful or more hopeful that kind of fit into our perspective and needs. And when we do that, just like 
just like Jefferson in a sense, what we're trying to do is to bring the Bible into our pre-established world, our life, our presumptions, our worldview, the things that matter most to us, into our culture in a way that we can still call ourselves Christian, but yet accommodate a little bit the pressure the world's putting on us around certain moralities or certain philosophies. We all edit the Bible when we try to fit it into our life. And, and the thing you come to when you begin to engage Scripture is that it is bigger than any single life. It doesn't fit into your presuppositions. The Bible actually is a doorway out of your life into God's. Peterson, in his book, which I've recommended to you, Eat This Book, uh, inspiration for the name of our series, uses an illustration that is um, largely used by, um, I'm sorry, thank you, Barth, who uh, is single-handedly credited historically with recovering historic Christian faith in Europe at a time when they were drifting away from the truth of Scripture. And he himself rediscovered Scripture in a powerful way and shares this classic illustration that is somewhat autobiographical, but that he suggests ought to be the reality when we discover the truth of God's Word. It's called the people of the warehouse, and Peterson expands on it a little bit. Let me read it for you. Imagine a group of men and women in a huge warehouse. They were born in this warehouse, grew up in it, and have everything there for their needs and comfort. There are no exits to the building, but there are windows. But the windows are thick with dust and are never cleaned, and so no one bothers to look out. Why would they? The warehouse is everything they know, has everything they need. But then one day, one of the children drags a step stool under one of the windows and scrapes off the grime and looks out. He sees people walking on the streets. He calls to his friends to come and look. They crowd around the window. They never knew a world existed outside their warehouse. And then they notice a person out in the street looking up and pointing. Soon several people are gathered looking up and talking excitedly. The children look up, but there is nothing to see but the ceiling of their warehouse. They finally get tired of watching these people out on the street acting in a crazy way, pointing up at nothing and getting excited about it. What's the point of stopping for no reason at all, pointing at nothing at all, and talking up a storm about that nothing? But what those people in the street were actually looking at was an airplane, or geese in flight, or a gigantic pile of cumulus clouds. The people in the street look up and see the heavens and everything in the heavens. The warehouse people have no heavens above them, just a roof. What would happen, though, if one day one of those kids cut a door out of the warehouse, coaxed his friends out, and discovered the immense sky above them, and the grand grand horizons beyond them. That is what happens, writes Barth, when we open the Bible. We enter the totally unfamiliar world of God, 
A world of creation and salvation stretching endlessly above and beyond us. Life in the warehouse never prepared us for anything like this. That's the world into which Scripture brings us when we engage it as the living Word of God, as an invitation into God's life, not a a user's guide to your life as you currently know it. And when we become those kind of people, God not only draws us into the life we're intended for, but uses us to draw others into that world. Now, I'm guessing throughout this series, depending on how long you've been a follower of Jesus or how much time you've spent in the Bible in your past or recently, all of us have spent time, whether we are devoted to the Bible in some way with regular devotions or not, all of us would admit we could do better. We could find more time. We could engage this more fully than we do. And so I want to pose the question as we finish up this series, what happens when people return to God's Word in the way He intended it? What happens when that takes place? Fortunately, there are numerous wonderful stories in the Bible that give us a glimpse of that, at least in that culture and in that day. And in that, there are principles for us to learn today. And the story we're going to focus on is in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, chapter 22. It's page 279 in the Pew Bibles, and I'd encourage you to turn there with me. We're going to actually read through much of these two chapters, 22 and 23, as we teach through it. Now let me give you the context to this so that you understand where we're coming to in this story and can make the most of it. There is definitely a pattern, both in the Bible and in the history of Christianity, that I'm going to express to you now, and we're going to call it generation to generation. Periodically, there is a generation in the course of history that turns back to God in a powerful way. We call them awakenings. There are are seasons of this, great eras of this in our own history as a nation, one of which we call the Great Awakening that impacted America in profound ways all around the time of the Revolution. Very impactful uh, in that historic uh, uh, time as well. What launches these generations of revival is a return to the Bible. Preachers that come back to the Word of God and begin preaching it with power that brings uh, a change, a renewal in the lives of God's people. And often when there are these generations of awakening and revival, new things come out. They recover beliefs in Scripture. They, They return to historic beliefs of the faith. But often there are new traditions, new practices, new worship music. That often comes out of these things, new initiatives, social justice. Did you know many of the social justice institutions that we think are just part of our society actually were birthed out of that great awakening I just mentioned? The first people to minister in, hosp- in prisons uh, and to care for the, the state of prisoners in our prison system were Christians whose lives have been transformed through the Great Awakening. 
the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was started out of the Great Awakening. Did you know that? And so whenever there is this awakening, that generation births powerful uh, things that uh, the church begins to follow by way of tradition, but then also ministries and initiatives that impact culture. Now the generation that comes after them usually grows up inside those things and is pretty committed to those very beliefs and practices and missions. But unfortunately, what happens so often is that the generation before them, while they include them and pass on those beliefs and tradition, doesn't show them the teachings in God's Word that have led to those convictions. So they are hard-held beliefs and, and traditions and practices, but that generation usually can't go to the Bible to point to why and what we do. And so consequently, the generation that comes after them is less committed to those things. They're usually still active in the congregation, but they actually begin to question some of those beliefs because they're now two generations removed from the generation that returned to the book, returned to the Word of God. And so they tend to be in the church, but they're less committed to the belief systems that birthed it. And then the generation that they birth is less committed to the church. They show up for, you know, the, the, the big Sundays, <laughs> Easter and Christmas. Or they show up for the ceremonies, what we call throwing water, throwing rice, or throwing dirt. And that's their practice. And then, of course, the generation that they birth, we call unchurched. Now that great awakening I talked about was birthed right here in New England and in Massachusetts. But today, New England, the six New England states are the most unchurched contiguous states in the whole nation. We are truly post-Christian. We are on the bottom end of that generation path that I've described to you. What, hap what would happen if God's people were awakened in a fresh way to truly, not just in a lighthearted way, we weren't just fans of the Bible, but we were transformed by the Bible. What, what would happen here? Well, that's exactly the situation that we come to in 2 Kings chapter 22. In a similar way, the nation of Israel has completely bottomed out in terms of their relationship with God and their practice of the things of God. And God is about to do a new thing. So let's pick it up, beginning at verse 1. Just going to read the first few verses to get us started. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedida, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bosketh. By the way, there's a whole seminary class for how to say all these fancy names in the Old Testament. I skipped it. <laughs> he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So if you just jump down into the Bible right here, one of the false assumptions you might make is that Josiah was one of the sons of David, right? Because he walked in the path of his father David. But actually... This is 300 years after David's reign. Ten generations. Josiah is the 15th king. 
And if we were to read the story of those kings in the nation of Israel leading up to Josiah, we would see this very path that I just described to you having occurred in their history. In fact, and maybe later on today, go back and read chapter 21, and you'll see how bad it gets. Josiah's grandfather is Manasseh. He's thought of as one of the most vile and wicked kings in the history of Israel. He's described as having sinned more than any other king, and yet the author is not satisfied with that description. He goes on and says, Manasseh actually sinned and did more evil in the sight of the Lord than the people who were in that land before Israel came in. And those people were so vile in their practices that they sacrificed their own children to their gods. And so in sending the children of Israel into that promised land, he actually was judging those people and expelling them from that land in judgment. Manasseh did worse, Scripture records, than those people. He also sacrificed children to pagan gods. He brought pagan idols into the very temple of God and defiled that temple. And so consequently, the whole nation of Israel just fell out of any relationship with their God in spite of the amazing history and traditions that God had passed down to them. And so now Josiah comes on the scene, eight-year-old kid, and God supernaturally gets a hold of his heart. And he's doing his best to kind of walk in the tradition of David, who Scripture records was a man after God's heart. Josiah was a young man after God's heart, but he's uninformed. And what we're about to read is how that desire for God is ignited through the discovery, the rediscovering of the Word of God. Let's read on. In the eighth year of his reign, so now he's, or the 18th year, now he's 26, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. One of the things that Josiah realizes is that the temple of God is in shambles. He wants to worship God. So he says, let's, let's do a refurb project. So they, they raise funds. And he sends his secretary to the high priest to account for those funds, to make sure everybody's getting paid and what they're supposed to be getting. Now we're going to pick up the story in verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, you ready for this? I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. This is the high priest. And he's shocked. Hey, I found the Bible in the temple. Where was it? What was it laying under? How had it been lost? But yet, it is, they are so far removed from it that they, they weren't even looking for it. They just happened on it while they were doing renovations. It's amazing. Let's read on. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. So Shaphan is still on task, right? To him, the most important thing that's taken place here is that the money is being handled correctly. His conversation with the king is about the money. 
And then as a minor point, he says, Shaphan the secretary informed the king, this is both funny and sad, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. A book. Not just the book, a book. This is the secretary of the king of Israel. He doesn't even know what he's got in his hand. The very word of God. And now what we're going to do is to see what happens as that book is opened. And as Josiah and the people of God rediscover what's in it. And this is what we're going to look. I'm going to share three things that take place when we return to God's word. And the first is personal. What happens personally to Josiah? And that is revival. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. In ancient times, that's an act of mourning, of sadness. He's broken by what he reads because he realizes his life and the life of Israel isn't close to what God intended. There's a right place for that type of mourning because God then can turn that into righteous dancing when we turn back to him. Verse 12, he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Mekiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiai the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us, because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Now prior to this moment, Josiah had what I would call an emotional, experiential relationship with God. Which is probably how a lot of you relate to God. You mean well. You're doing your best to follow God, but you're just going at it the best you can. When we turn to God's word, that's when we realize how far off some of our assumptions are when we're just feeling our way along. And that's what happens to Josiah. There have to be moments like that. I, I remember a, a profound moment like that in my own life in my early 30s. I was a pastor's kid. I was raised to know and love the Lord. And for the first 10 years of my ministry years in my 20s, I was doing my best to serve the Lord. I was going along with what I had learned and been taught. But then as I came into my 30s and began to take stock of my life and my faith and my experience of God, I, I realized that I wasn't really happy with where I was, but I didn't know where to go. And I found myself, you know, looking and checking out all sorts of things. Some of you have heard me talk about this season in my life. And the things I was saying, Lord, I want whatever it is I'm missing, I want. And praise God, it was the word of God that opened me up to a whole different and new and deeper and profound experience with God. And prior to that, I was a successful person in ministry and people would have thought of me as a pretty good Christian. But man, when, I, when God's word came alive to me and I saw the difference between what God intended for me not just in terms of how I live my life, but my relationship with him and what he wanted to reveal to me about himself through his word. I was transformed. 
God got huge in my thinking. Not just a sentimental reality, but I saw the sovereign and glorious God for all that he was through his word. But I also saw him as Abba Daddy, and I came to embrace grace and the love of God deeper than I'd ever known it. It happened at the same time that this was happening. Part of how God got a hold of me, it was that I became a dad. I had our first child, Tommy. And uh, for me, that was just a dramatic shift in my view of God because prior to that, I saw God as a heavenly father through my experience of my own father. And so that's why I, I grew up kind of trying to earn my dad's respect. And so up until that, I was desperately trying to earn God's. I was trying to prove myself to God. And then I became a dad. And all of a sudden, my understanding of God's heart for me as my father was informed by my heart for my own kid. Right? You know what I'm talking about, Ron, right? Yeah. It's powerful. And that created a hunger. And it was God's word that gave me footing for that. No longer just going by feel, but by revelation. That's what happens to Josiah. And if you read the rest of the chapter, what he does is that he uses his authority to tear down all the idols all across Israel, to reclaim the high places where those idols were, literally the geographic high places where idols were set up, to reclaim them for God. And he even needed to put to death some of the pagan priests who rebelled against that. This was serious stuff that Josiah was doing. Revival, tearing down high places in his own life and then as best as he could in his sphere of influence. That's the personal impact of returning to God's Word. But there's a corporate impact that takes place as well. When we corporately return to God's Word, we recommit to the things of God, to the purposes of God, to the priorities of God. Instead of viewing our time together as how we can make our priorities succeed, fitting God's Word and God into our life, we enter into his life, and his priorities become ours. Let's look at chapter 23, beginning at verse 1. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And then the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. And then all the people pledged themselves to this same covenant. So there's a returning back to the way God has called us to live. You know, and for us as a church, if we become more fully people of the book, what will happen is we will look at our priorities and we will measure them based on God's priorities and his mission for us. We'll look at our moral choices and we'll measure them against a holy and, and good God who calls us to reflect that holiness in our lives. But more than that, our hearts will beat as His, and we, like He calls His people to, will hear Him say, 
I have told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That would be more true of a people of God. I think we are in many ways that church. We aspire to it. We talk about it. What could it be if we truly went deeper into this experience of letting the Word of God transform our lives? And the third thing that happens is culturally. There is a recovering of what I'm going to call the shalom, the blessing of God that God's people bring to culture around them when they're walking with God. In this case, it's the nation of Israel. So it's not exactly a perfect analog, is it? Because this is the people of God. Their politics and their laws were the, the Old Testament law. <laughs> their king was God's king. And so it, it's not a perfect analogy for us. But yet we can see how the very culture of the people is transformed. Let's look at verse 21, chapter 23. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Now how many here, I'm sure many of you, most of you perhaps are familiar with the Jewish practice of Passover. At least you've heard it, right? It's so common for us today that we look at this and we go, well, of course, Jewish people are going to practice Passover. But let's read it a little further and you'll realize how significant that very brief verse is. The king gave this order to all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. Think about that. That's 900 years. 900 years since the day of the judges. The Passover had never been practiced. The central celebration in the worship and life of the children of Israel had been neglected for nine centuries. And then he goes on and he says, but in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. That's pretty big. A recovery of the, the culture of grace that the Passover represents. God's miraculous deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt through the sacrifice of a lamb and the door and the blood of the lamb spread on the doorposts of their homes. You may remember that story, you may not, but that's what they celebrate. And you can find that story in the book of Exodus and read it someday. Now, I wish I could tell you that this was it, that this fixed everything for the children of Israel. But unfortunately, this generation followed the same course of path, and eventually things start going down again, and it gets so bad that Israel finally loses possession of the promised land, and they're in exile for 70 years. Talk about bottoming out. And then a remnant returns and lives in the land, and eventually they build the walls again around Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see another great awakening that takes place in the nation of Israel. As all of the people that had come back to the promised land gathered in the city, inside those new walls that gave them identity as the city of God, and the leaders read for them the book of the covenant. And like any generation who has not heard the book and not lived by it, when they first hear it, 
Nehemiah 8 records that all the people wept. Wept recognizing how the people that had come before them had failed to walk with God and had lost God's blessing. And maybe looking at their own state of affairs and wanting more. But it didn't stay there. Very quickly, Nehemiah and the others understood the importance to move from repentance to rejoicing. And so they called them to celebrate with joy, once again, the great festivals. And the story is described that they returned to the things of God as a people with great joy, having, having recommitted themselves, having found God's forgiveness and grace. And that practicing of the Passover that was instituted by Nehemiah in Nehemiah 8 is one of the final things that we see in the Old Testament narrative. 400 years go by before we see anything else, before the Gospels begin and the ministry and advent of Jesus occurs. And what we know is that across those 400 years, that Passover had been preserved. And that was really important for the things of God. Because as it turns out, when we look back and see the whole story, the Passover was primarily God's giant big object lesson about his plan not just to redeem Israel, but to redeem the whole world. Because the lamb that was slain each Passover was nothing more than a prophetic pointing to Jesus Christ, who Scripture records is the true lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And the events that are most precious to us in the Gospels occur during Passover. It's the day that the families in Jerusalem choose their lamb for sacrifice for their Passover feast. It was that very day that we call Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and literally was offering himself to the people as the lamb of God who would take away their sins. It was the Passover Seder that was being celebrated on that night when the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper the bread, and the cup. And it was the very afternoon of the great sacrifice of Passover week when Jesus Christ was being crucified on a garbage hill, garbage pile, outside the city of Jerusalem. And as he hung on the cross, in the very hour that the recorders of the gospel give, that was the hour that the sacrifice was occurring on the altar at the temple. And the priests would have sounded the shofar. And that shofar would have rung from that mountain all across the valley. And everyone knew that it was about the great sacrifice. And they all would have bowed their heads in silent humility for the sacrifice for their sins. And what we now recognize that without knowing it, it wasn't the animal being slaughtered on the altar on the mountain that was the true sacrifice. It was the Son of God hanging on the cross outside of the city. That shofar was ringing for him. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? To realize that God used other generations to reestablish things in culture that he had a deeper purpose for that they didn't even know about. They died not knowing how God was going to use what they instituted. And yet we now look back and see how God had a plan that was bigger than their generation. And it calls us to say, what might God want to do through us? 
the result of which we may never fully know, but he wants to do it through our generation. And while we are not in Jerusalem, and while our government and politics are not (laughs) Scripture, isn't it true that this nation needs the shalom peace of God more than it ever has? And isn't it possible that if we dive deeper into the Word and let it transform us and transform who we are and who you are as people, that we could see that blessing come again? And I believe in some ways we're seeing that in Worcester. NPR calls Worcester the it city. How do you like that? All that's happened in the last nine or ten years, Worcester's on an upswing. It happens at the same time that we started the Journey Community Church. Ah! I quite regularly walk out on Belmont Street and just shout, You're welcome! No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're at, but we are part of what God's doing in this city. That's true. We're certainly part of it. But I would say you're never going to see this in the local newspapers. You're never going to see it on television when they talk about what's happening here in Worcester. But we know God's people have been tearing down strongholds in this city through concerted prayer and how we live. We have been calling for God to once again take over and bring his shalom peace over the city. We have been tearing down strongholds where we see the enemy of God at work and we have been working for the good. We have been doing justice and we have been loving mercy as we walk humbly with our God. All this is birthed out of our being a people of this book. And this is what I want to call us to be together. I, I, think, I think we're... We've got our feet in the water. I think we're walking in it. But I want to challenge us to dive head first into the Word of God. I want to challenge you to personally do that. Let me ask you just a question. How many of you own a Bible? Don't, hold, don't raise your hands. It's, it's okay. Do you own a Bible? And being able to look one up on Google doesn't count. Here's another question. Where is your Bible right now? (laughs) Where was your Bible all week? What did God say to you through your Bible this week? All of us are here because we're hungry for a better life. We're hungry for God to do something in us. We want him to speak into and give us wisdom and, and uh, work in our circumstances, in our relationships, in our, our life's choices. We're, we're, we're here because we're hungry for God, but all too often we look at our life, we're dissatisfied, and then with our Bible firmly closed and sitting on our shelf, we blame God for the circumstances of our life. when all we need to do is invite him into it and then to step through his word into a much greater life with eternal purpose. Let's be people of the book. John Wesley, one of the great preachers in that great awakening I was talking about in our nation's history, wrote this about the Bible. 
I am a creature of a day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. (laughs) God himself has condescended to teach me that way. He has written it down in a book. Give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. Father, my prayer for each of us here is that when people measure our lives and look at who we are as your people, that they would recognize that with all the learning that we have available to us, with all the wonderful books and resources to develop and deepen our, our, ourselves, that ultimately there is one book that guides us, one book that we represent, that our lives reflect. Let us be people of this book. Do the work of transforming in us that you desperately want to bring about. Let us call each other to a deeper level of commitment to it. And then, Father, through that, use us to bring your shalom peace to this city and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.